It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Vicky. Je m'appelle Janelle. Je m'appelle Vicky. <laughs> I know. I wanted to learn French for so long. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like my brain is too old to, like, acquire a new language. I think I'd really need to work on it. Honestly, I know yeah. I really need to You'd work on it. You'd have to Duolingo um, all the live long day. <laughs> yeah. And I've tried on, like, multiple occasions, gotten s- somewhat into it, but, like, you gotta take a class, One day. you know? I know, I know. Or just immerse myself in the culture. Right, just go straight to France. Like jail. Straight to France. <laughs> straight to France. <laughs> uh, so if this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. And if you are French, a special apology to you. <laughs> a special <laughs> bonjour. Probably some difficult things to be pronounced coming up. Oh my gosh, yeah, we'll do our best, <laughs> but we'll get there. Before we get started, let's head over to the newsroom. Le newsroom. <laughs> Le newsroom. Fit to bring our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. It's very throaty. We're, we're turning into Peter Sellers right now. <laughs> Who's that? Oh Peter's- my God, Vicky. <laughs> What? Go look it up. Pink Panther. Oh, okay. 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 Yes. Yes. Dr. Strangelove. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Keep going. So our news this week comes from Oregon. Um, This article is actually from NBC News. So you're familiar with Indiana Jones, correct? (laughs) I may have watched a few. (laughs) Okay. 
So, a 71-year-old man, Gregory Lee Rodvelt, uh, is guilty. He was found guilty of assaulting a federal officer and using and discharging a firearm during and in relation to a crime of violence. Okay. Mouthful. Okay. So, he there was a lawsuit that had to do with his home um and he lost it he basically lost his home in a lawsuit Mm -hmm. and so the fbi he 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 basically so he finds this out he finds out that a receiver was appointed to deal with the sale of the property Mm -hmm. so he decided to booby trap it I like how you want Indiana Jones and not like Home Alone. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> There's a reason. Okay. So the FBI. Uh-oh. <laughs> the FBI who sent some bomb specialists and the Oregon State Police, they were called over to inspect the property because they kind of got wind. Um, he also had a history <laughs> of <Booby> some, tripping. <laughs> well, he was arrested in Arizona in April 2017 and charged with unlawful possession of explosives. So they were like, we're going to send in the bomb guys Mm -hmm. just in case. So they get to the property and they see a minivan um, blocking the front gates. And when they looked at it further, they saw that it was rigged with two booby traps. (laughs) So they disarmed them, get up to the house where they see a hot tub that was on an angle so it turns out that he had set up fishing line to release the round hot tub to roll down the hill at (laughs) anybody who was trying to get up through the gate this is the indiana jones reference yeah all right yeah (laughs) yeah 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 um so it says some engineering one of the quotes in this article says quote rodwell described it by referencing the stone rolling down in the indiana jones moving um he also talked of other tripwires on the property and a spike strip made of nails and wood which was designed to flatten tires yeah so they used an explosive charge to get into the house because they were like well this place is booby trapped to hell so like might as well blow it up yeah 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 (laughs) Um, when they got inside, it says they came upon a wheelchair and it got bumped by one of the officers, which triggered a homemade shotgun device. Um, that oh my God, hit one serious. that hit one of the FBI technicians below the knee. Um, he was treated and released, so he's okay. Um, but he was found guilty of of all of these crimes, and he's looking at twenty years in prison. So, uh, he's losing his house, but he's gaining a prison cell, I guess. From one home to another. Right? Uh, Maybe that was his goal the whole time. Yeah. I don't Guaranteed know. Guaranteed housing. So that's a lot of work to go through for... Um, there are some people who do purposely get arrested against. So they go I back know. into jail because they don't know how to live any other life. It's true. It's true. <laughs> We're going to move on to Netflix and Kill, where this week we are talking about Fugitive, the curious case of Carlos Ghosn. Mm-hmm. Now, if you remember, I was following this case very heavily when this happened because it's mm-hmm. kind of crazy. Um, so this was, this was just a couple years ago, 2019, I think, maybe 2020. Carlos Ghosn, who was the acting CEO, chairman, sort of, of 
uh, the Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi. It's kind of complicated because it wasn't really a merger and Renault kind of owned Nissan, but they weren't like merged as one company. They were sort of like Mm -hmm. a parent company. And so he was CEO of both for a little while. He essentially, he's, uh, Carlos Ghosn is originally from Lebanon, um, comes over, is this like radical CEO that changes the landscape of how cars are made and looked at and and, and advertised. Mm-hmm. So basically, shit starts going sideways in a lot of ways. And they determine that he's been embezzling a bunch of money through all these accounts. Um, he gets arrested in Japan. And is being held for trial in Japan. Um, he gets released on bail eventually. I mean, you have to know Japan's uh, justice system is very different. Yes. From ours. Mm-hmm. Um, their interview techniques, their the way that they treat prisoners um, or people who have been arrested and accused of crimes. Even just like the prevalence of like CCTV mm-hmm. cameras and stuff. Very, very different. So he was really concerned that he was not going to be getting a fair trial uh, in Japan. Once he's released on bail, he essentially hooks up with these two former U.S. Air Force guys. Mm -hmm. They were some kind of specialists that sneak gone out of the country in a music I don't even know what you call those. They're like chests, but they're like the ones on wheels that bands use. Okay, yeah. Along with some other instruments to make it look like it was. They Even when they went through air, airport security, they were like, oh, no, this can't go through an x-ray because this is these are very expensive instruments that have been tuned like so precisely that it, anything like x-ray is really just going to like ruin them. <laughs> so they managed to sneak him out of the country in this music box to essentially to Lebanon where he is at and still waiting trial. Um, It's kind of a wild story because it also gives you this history of his career with Renault and and Nissan and eventually Mitsubishi Mm -hmm. before he like has to escape arrest Um, and sort of the history of him and his father's legal troubles, um, which had to do with, doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Murder. Oh, okay. There's some murder things. Um, it's just a really interesting story. And at the time it was happening, it was huge news because it was like, how do you sneak somebody out in 2019, like through an airport without any, you know, and yeah, very um, sensational because of the method that he was like snuck out. And I remember it originally being described as like a... I remember when it was described, I thought in my head it was like a um, like a case for a bass, like a string bass. Mm-hmm. And see, but then when they talk about it, because they show like the security cam footage of him being snuck out of the country. And it is like just one of those big like music things on wheels, yeah. like mm-hmm. one of those big boxes on wheels. So um, have you watched this yet? No, I haven't. Mm-mm. You should. <laughs> you should. It's I think. Again, this is like a documentary, like hour and a half long, maybe. Mm-hmm. But especially, it's I don't want to say it's good if you're into cars. You don't have to be into cars to get it, but like it provides a lot of context on sort of too, like the history of Renault and Nissan and like w- where the companies were going when Gone took over. So like that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Um, he's kind of just a weird dude, frankly. <laughs> uh, but definitely check it out. 
It's called Fugitive, The Curious Case of Carlos Ghosn. It's on Netflix. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. This is a rough one for me. Anyway, we'll be talking of yeah, about some be <laughs> cases of murder and rape and just some really not great stuff, but also France. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, so we are going to France this week. Yay. So apologies in advance because I don't speak French, but I try really hard because <laughs> I do love the French language. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I just don't speak it. <laughs> so I'm going to start off by talking about Patrick Tissier. Okay. Uh, might be Tissier, but I'm saying Tissier. <laughs> so there isn't actually a ton known about Patrick Tissier's early life. He was born in 1952 in Borges. He was the middle of five kids. It sounds like the home life wasn't entirely healthy. Um, His parents were often violent towards each other. According to a later recounting from Tissier himself, he claimed that his mother had many secret lovers that the kids knew about, but that, um, and that his father beat the children and that one of his brothers had also committed suicide, like as a result of kind of all of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Liberation included a quote from Tissier in which he says, quote, we did not tell our father that our mother had lovers. For him, we were accomplices. So Tissier's mother finally left the family in 1963 when he was just 11. Before I go too much further, I do want to point out, too, that a lot of these articles are in French. And so sometimes the translation gets a little yeah. <laughs> jumbled. So just be aware of that. Mine also. Yeah. <laughs> Then in 1965, Tissier showed his first signs of criminality and derangement when he attempted to rape one of his sisters when she was only 12 years old. Zero to ten. Literally, yeah. Uh, She somehow was able to convince him to not go through with it. Wow, okay. And so it didn't happen. Uh, But just four years later, Tissier again attempted to attack a member of his family when he attempted to rape his stepmother by hitting her on the head and strangling her, but was unable to complete the act. Uh, This prompted his stepmother to contact DDASS, or France's Departmental Directorate for Health and Social Action, which investigated the allegation and opted to put Tissier into an adolescent psychiatric facility for a period of time before being considered cured and released. Oh, my God. Never happens. (laughs) No. They're never cured. Not when it's that kind of shit. No. No way. At the age of 19, he got a job as a gas station attendant and met 16-year-old Marie-Francois Pinson, and the two started a relationship. Uh, One night in 1971, the two had gone to a dance, uh, and later they were walking along the river. At some point, Tizier asked Pinson to have sex, and when she refused, he attacked the young woman, attempted to strangle her and rape her numerous times before throwing her body into the nearby river. Pinson's body was discovered the next day, and Tizier very quickly came under suspicion, eventually being arrested, charged, and convicted of murder in 1972. Now, because Tissier was considered a minor at the time, um, he was able to avoid the death penalty. 
instead receiving 20 years in prison and was sent to Borges prison. Now, while he was there, he was considered a model inmate and was able to have his sentence reduced to 18 years instead of 20. Then he started taking advantage of the prison's furlough, um, something they likely regretted later. Yep. (laughs) Furlough is one of these things that has always been controversial, I don't know of many, if any, prison facilities in the U.S. that still utilize a furlough program if it's not like. um, It's like house arrest now. Yeah. And and like a lot of times places will have like separate areas for like family visits that are like mini Mm -hmm. houses and stuff. That's probably about as close to furlough as you'd come in the U.S. But this did sort of prompt me to look into Francis Furlough's furlough policy and why it appears a little bit looser than ours in the u.s and i'll be honest i didn't really find much part of it has to do because i'm looking at french stuff and i can't it's hard to like parse through some of that yeah and they might call Um, something completely different yeah and i also think too like this furlough policy partly has to do with the time period that he was incarcerated which was like the 70s to the 80s where in general I would say across most developed nations, like the prison policies were a lot looser Mm -hmm. at that point in time. But also Europe has way more of a focus on things like recidivism rates and reducing those numbers while giving people incarcerated more access to like their family and their support system uh, in hopes of reducing like future crime rates. Right. We just don't have that kind of culture here, unfortunately. So Whatever the case may be, um, Tissier received five furloughs throughout the time that he was incarcerated, all of which happened without incident. They were all totally normal. His sixth furlough took place December 15th, 1982. And at this time, Tissier made an escape. So about a week later, uh, Tissier threatened a young woman with a shotgun near Toulouse, uh, forcing her into his car. He drove a bit out of town before raping her and fleeing. The following day, Tizier attempted this again, um, but was unable to rape the second woman, instead fleeing with her purse. It would be four months before a passerby would identify Tizier and call police, who quickly came and arrested him and charged him with rape, attempted rape, and aggravated theft. Tizier was on trial in 1985 and was found guilty on all the charges and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Gets sent back to prison. Well, that's good. (laughs) Surely, surely that was it, right? Mm, Wrong! Not. It's not done. Um, Because it's sexual crimes, you know? Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. So far, just, yes. (laughs) So So far. far, So far. Uh, So Tizier remained in prison until 1992. When he was paroled, when he was paroled, France, yeah, (laughs) and moved to Perpignan, um, there he attempted to start a new life. He was like, I'm starting over. I'm going to join the Mormons. I realize I've been talking about Mormons a lot recently. That's not intentional. A French Mormon. That seems odd. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, they're over there. Um, So during his religious enlightenment, Tissier befriended the the Volkerts, a family who was active in the LDS church. At the time, the family had no idea about Tissier's like criminal history or that he had just gotten out of prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so they pretty much became these super close family friends with Tissier, including all of their children who referred to him as Uncle Patrick. Like, 
close. Ew. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Living next door to Tizier at the time was 45-year-old Conchetta Lemma, a mother of seven children. On August 6, 1993, Tizier attacked Lemma in what people now assume was uh, rape and strangulation per his MO. Uh, he then wrapped Lemma's body in a shower curtain and disposed of it in an underground tunnel. Lemma's disappearance was noticed pretty quickly, but investigators weren't able to find any evidence whatsoever at the time that he was even connected to it, and the case pretty much went cold. A little over a month later, on September 10th, Tissier attacked his next victim, Marie Jose Gauss, who was in her early 40s. According to Liberation, Gauss was recently divorced and had forged this sort of like friendship with uh, Tissier, which then at some point sort of turned into an affair a little bit. Mm. Um, Oh, France. (laughs) Yeah. Quote, Marie Jose sells fitness products by organizing meetings in private homes. This is how she met Patrick Tissier, invited him several times to her home. They have a brief affair, uh, which Tissier is not satisfied with. He needs more affair. More. More (laughs) of the affair. Uh, During later court hearings, Gauss described the attack. Quote, he was squeezing, he was squeezing, I felt my head exploding, exploding, and he said to me, you're going to die, you're going to die, it's over for you. Tizier had strangled Gauss with a scarf, uh, causing her to lose consciousness. He then raped her while she was unconscious, and when she finally came to, Gauss realized that she had her hands cuffed behind her back, and her ankles had been tied, and she had a gag in her mouth. Tissier was literally getting ready to murder Gauss, and she somehow, again, managed to convince him not to go through with it and survived. It just, it's incredible. Just three days later, Tissier went to the elementary school of eight-year-old Kareen Volkert, the mm-hmm. daughter of the family that he befriended when he joined the Mormon church. Um, he was waiting for Kareen after school offered her a ride home, something that would not have been weird considering the relationship that he had with the family. On their way home, Tissier suggested they stop to play a little game. He drove them to a warehouse where he put a hood on Corrine before raping and strangling her to death. Tissier then disposed of Corrine's body by throwing it down a well at an abandoned house um, nearby, followed by chucking like a bunch of garbage down to try to cover it up. Of course, by this time, Gauss had filed a police report about her attack, and Corrine had also been reported missing. So pretty much they Im- immediately knew Tissier was involved in, in all of this. Uh, after a brief car chase, Tissier was arrested on September 21st, 1993. Upon searching his car, authorities discovered multiple weapons inside the vehicle. Uh, he really did not put up any sort of a fight. It was like... I kind of knew this was coming yeah. type of deal. So uh, he was arrested, pretty much confessed right away to most everything. Uh, He even told police exactly where to find Corrine's body. A few months later, while Tissier was in custody and still being investigated for all of these crimes, there was um, an incident where Corrine's uncle, Dominique Milwee, went to the mayor's office in Perpignan and held the director of the office hostage, demanding police turn Tissier over to him. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, the uncle was like, showed up at the mayor's office, took the director hostage, and was like, hand him over to our family, basically. Okay. Um, it was it was resolved without incident. Yeah, I was like, how do you think this is going to go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tizier was interviewed multiple times following his arrest, and it wasn't until September 1995 that he confessed to Conchetta Lemma's murder. At first, telling authorities that he had dismembered her, um, dismembered and put her body in a pond in Fertu. But he eventually offered up that her body was actually placed uh, in the underground tunnel in Canoes. And authorities were able to recover Lemma's remains. And Tizir was also charged with her murder as well. Now, finally, in January 1998, Tizir's trial began for all of these murders. He was charged with murder, rape, and attack of Conchetta Lemma, Marie Jose Gauss, and Corinne Volkert. A psychiatric examination was performed at trial, and the report concluded he didn't have any mental illness. Hey, buddy. Which I find interesting because he had already spent time at a youth uh, psychiatric facility. So, like, I guess I'm not saying that I want him to get off because of insanity, but, like, that is a thing that you have to take into account, right? And I just feel like there's evidence to the contrary. Or maybe it wasn't the case then, and that was the incorrect you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. which which one is right yeah that's what i want to know it took just a few days for tissier to be found guilty on all crimes and sentenced to life in prison with 30 years preventative detention which basically means 30 years until you can be paroled um currently he has a release date of september 2023 okay so count up here quickly (laughs) yeah but it's going to be up to the courts, like, if they are going to just release him or not. Although this is all horrible. like this <laughs> Really? Is, you don't this say. This is all absolutely <laughs> horrible, yeah. Um, Tizier's crimes did actually spark a conversation about recidivism rates and policies surrounding the release of violent criminals. Mm-hmm. In early 1994, following Tissier's arrest, the Minister of Justice at the time, Pierre Mehmich, <laughs> this is probably the most complicated name in this whole thing, Mehejnery, Mehejnery, sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, proposed a law which would eliminate parole for people convicted of the rape and murder of minors. I did try to see like what the result of that proposal was and couldn't find out if it went forward or not. But, you know, I think it is important to like talk about the conversations that people were then having about these recidivism rates and these um, because, I mean, that's a tough thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you when do you release people if you if you release people and what does that look like and how does that work? Yeah, I don't have the answer for that. Unfortunately, well, sexual crime usually is an indicator of deeper things. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I just the fact that he was in and out and in, and I realize obviously one of those out times was because he escaped. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because they released him, but yeah, you know, being so in and out like that is like is okay. What is the larger issue then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, now anyway, that's the story of Patrick Tissier. Well, fuck. Well, fuck indeed. (laughs) 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So for my story, we're going to go to 1950s France. Oh, shit. Which is, you know, barely after World War II is over. We're going to get a little background on on one of the people involved in this story. And this is a, a little bit of a across-the-pond situation here. So a British man named Sir Jack Cecil Drummond was a really famous chemist. He was born in 1891 near London. His birth and early life were kind of a mystery, the only thing I could really find for certain was that he was adopted by his aunt, um, and his parents kind of seemed to have disappeared. Okay. He originally ma- married Mabel Straw in 1915, and after 20 years of marriage, Jack had an affair with his secretary, Anne, immediately divorced his wife, Mabel, and married Anne in 1940. So right after they got married, two years later, they had a daughter named Elizabeth. Now, I mentioned that Jack was a very famous chemist. Mm -hmm. Now, he graduated school with honors and became a research assistant in the Department of Physiology um, at King's College London, working under Otto Rosenheim and Professor W.D. Halliburton. And these two men did a lot of research with vitamins, nutrition, chemistry. These are things that were kind of starting to happen. Like, we didn't have vitamins yet. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. This is like early days of science. In 1914, he then moved to the Cancer Hospital Research Institute, where he worked with a man with the most amazing fucking name I've ever heard in my life, Casimir Funk. What? (laughs) His name is Casimir Funk. Funk. Is it like F-U-N-K Funk? Oh, my God. It's just so fucking amazing. I just, he needs his own theme tune. He needs a jazz band or something. Like a jazz funk theme tune, yeah. Now, they together working coined the term vitamin because they're British, so it's pronounced vitamin. vitamin. Mm. This is when Drummond became really fascinated with nutrition, and this is kind of where his research started to develop. By 1917, him and Halliburton did some experimental work on substitutions for butter by creating margarine. 
<laughs> no way. Yeah. I did not come into this episode <laughs> thinking we would be discussing the history of margarine. So they were doing this to kind of see if they could get uh, fat-soluble vitamins. Okay. Um, and so, you know, trying to improve the nutrition of the poor people of Britain. <laughs> By giving them margarine. Right? <laughs> um, in 1919, he moved to the University College of London to work. And he kind of started developing some things with some other scientists there that became modern biochemistry. Damn. All right. Yeah. In 1920, he proposed that the vitamin vital substances that he discovered with Kashmir Funk and Elmer Werner McCollum be called vitamin A and B. So they basically discovered vitamins A and B okay. and named vitamin C. Um, it was kind of known that vitamin C was already a thing because of uh, previous um, experimentation with trying to figure out how to cure scurvy. <laughs> mm, that'll <laughs> thing. Last night, <laughs> and last night as we were at the cookout, mm-hmm. uh, someone had made some fruit salad and I was like, I really need to eat this because I feel a touch of the scurvy coming yeah, on. Yeah, you really I'm need your Got to vary my diet a fruits. little more. Yes. <laughs> So they were kind of, you know, discovering all of these vitamins, naming them. And in 1922, at the age of 31, he became the first professor of biochemistry at UCL. Now, if you're not familiar, this is like end of World War One, beginning of World War Two. Okay. Um, and this is also the time period where the governments in Great Britain were starting to get more and more involved in, like, nutrition of the people. Um, the Ministry of Food consulted um, him on the possibility of gas contamination of food during the outbreak of uh, the First War. And then they brought him back in in 1939 for the outbreak of World War Two. And appointed him chief advisor of food contamination. All right. So really trying to figure out, like, how food rationing and how food on the front lines could be sort of improved to create better nutrition, but also shelf stability. And particularly in regards to the rationing, he really created a very modern diet. So he stated that people need a lot of vitamins, especially the people who are the poorest in society because they don't have access to food and they need to increase their protein. So they kind of discovered the best way to ration food to create the most optimal health. And the weirdest fucking thing about all of this is that the population of Great Britain during World War II their health actually improved because of rationing. Oh, shit. Because you had to cut back on certain fats, sugars, butter, and eggs, and you had an increase of vegetables and, like, solid proteins. So he accidentally made Britain more healthy. Now, he's this big head honcho professor now. We're fast-forwarding to the 1950s. Okay. And because he is this big head honcho professor guy, he has money, and they go and they do lots of holidays together, him, his wife, and his daughter. Of course. The European holiday. Right? And in 1952, they decided to go to France. Particularly, they were going to visit the French Alps on a camping trip. Okay. Now, I kind of forgot that we were talking about crimes for a second. Uh-huh. That was so informative. I really just enjoyed that. That I'm like, oh, yeah, well, something bad's about to happen. Isn't it's it? kind of important because there's going to be a lot of conspiracy theories later on regarding his biochemistry. 
Okay. <laughs> so he takes his family to a camping trip in the French Alps, close to the city of Lourdes. Um, Drummond's family made a stop along the highway about 165 meters from a farm called La Grande Tourée. They stopped at um, a mile marker and decided that they were going to try to make camp just off the path. So the Grand Terre farm was inhabited by the Dominicis, a Franco-Italian farming family. So their name's actually Italian. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is going to be very confusing. We're going to have right. French, we're going to have Italian, we're going to have British people. It's going to be all You made place. this so hard on yourself. I know. Why did I do this? <laughs> that evening, while the um, Drummond family was camping, the Dominici family were having a party to celebrate the end of their harvest. So... During this time, there were family members walking up and down the farmhouse in the fields, which was right off the road, passing the Drummond family on multiple occasions during their camping. Okay. The Dominchis, um had alfalfa fields that were irrigated, and they used the water from the canal, and it was close to the railroad tracks. There was a lot of, like areas where people were really visible and so people could see each other like walking around it was like a very active farm um, home community that they were around a few days before the uh, drummonds and the party that the dominicis had one of the irrigation pipes burst and so they were having during you know the night and all throughout the party, people going to just check to make sure that it wasn't overly flooding anywhere. So lots of people were walking back and forth. Now I say this because there's going to be a shit ton of eyewitnesses. Okay. And it's going to confuse the shit out of all of us. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> so we have a family camping close to a farm. People are there for a party. There's lots of people walking around. Now it's August 5th. And at about 1.10 a.m., several shots were heard in the distance. Around 4.30 a.m., a cab driver named Marceau Blanc um, was driving down the road. He noticed off the road a camp bed in front of a car that would later be um, identified as the Drummond's car. Okay. He also saw that there was a sheet of canvas covering the car's um, front window and the right side window. Okay. Wait, covering the front and right. Yeah. So the driver's okay. side window, or no, the passenger the side passenger window. The passenger side. Okay. About twenty minutes later, another man named Joseph Moiner passed by the area as well, and he didn't notice any of these things. He just saw a car off to the side of the road. He didn't see a camp bed or any sheets. Okay. At 5.20 a.m., Jean Hebrard um, also came down the road and noticed a camp bed lying in the street. Okay. The scene was a little confusing. Now, Gustave Dominici claimed that he had woken up that morning at 5.30 and went out for a little walk of the property. It was then that he stated that he discovered the body of Elizabeth Drummond at 5.45 a.m. It appeared that her skull had been smashed in several areas and that um, there was pieces of wood embedded into her hair. She was found about 77 meters away from the car and kind of pointed downwards a slope towards the river. 
So like head first down okay. a hill, basically. Okay. At 6 a.m., Gustave flagged down someone, as he was kind of coming upon the scene, um, named Jean-Marie Olivier. She was passing by on a motorcycle on – I'm sorry, not she. He, he was on his way um, to work on his motorcycle, and he asked uh, – Gustave asked Olivier to uh, hop on the back so that he could get to the closest village to call the police mm-hmm. because he just came across a body. Gotcha. You know, this yes. is provincial France where there's no phones, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they get to town. They call the police. It was later discovered that Gustave himself owned a motorcycle. And it was a little bit weird that he asked and waited for someone to come by to get a ride to town. So keep that in mind. Wait, say that again. He waited. He, so he was like 15 minutes after he found the body, yeah, he flagged down someone coming down the road. Okay. Was it not just like a remote area and it took 15 minutes for somebody to come down? Or? I mean, it was remote-ish. Okay. But there would have been people passing by. Yeah. Gotcha. But gotcha. Okay. the crime scene investigators stated that he had a motorcycle and he was within walking distance okay. of his own home that he could have just walked back in the time that it took him to wait for somebody. Gotcha. You know, like there was like a little weird inconsistency starting to appear to them. Okay. Okay. So around 7.30, two police officers arrived at the crime scene and it was already contaminated because there were people walking to get to work and being like, oh my gosh, there's a car and a bunch of fucking bodies. Um <laughs> So, in true fashion. Yeah. You know, I mean, at mm. least it wasn't like like people being like, let's go check out the bodies. It's like, oh, fuck, I'm just trying to get to work, man. And there's bodies, which I'm not saying that's any better, but at least it wasn't intentional. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, um, the investigators get there, and a few moments after 7.30, Gustav comes back to the scene walking on foot, and... He comes up to the police officers as they're kind of starting to discover um, Anne Drummond's body. Now, while they were investigating, they found um, a shred of human skin on the car's rear bumper. And there was a lot of, like, stuff thrown about, marks everywhere, a lot of, like, dirt, blood flecks. Like, it was messy and sporadic. Okay. So it didn't really, like, it, you couldn't really decipher what was, like, a normal camp scene and what was, ha- like, what was happening, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, the car's front door had been closed while the boot door, which is, you know, the trunk, um, was pushed in slightly with the key left in the lock on the outside. Okay. The rear of the car had... There was like a drainage sump pump behind it off the road, and the police officers noticed a pool of blood around that kind of ditch area. Okay. The police also found two cartridge cases and two full cartridges lying in pairs. Um, One pair was found about three meters behind the car. The other was found about five meters perpendicular to the front left of the car. All right. So like... Kitty corner. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Which was pretty close to Ann Drummond's body. Okay. Now, Gustav was working with the police and he kind of like drew them to the other area where the body, other bodies were. So, you know, we had Anne who was found first. Okay. And then upon searching the area, we have Jack Drummond. And then presumably their daughter was somewhere in proximity. Okay. 
So they get to Jack Drummond's body, which was actually on the opposite side of the road, and then found at the riverbank on the other side, their daughter, Elizabeth Drummond's body laying in the river. So they're like kind of scattered. They're really scattered. Wow. Okay. The two officers discovered two shoe, uh, shoe prints from crepe shoes, which are like canvas boat shoes, right next to Elizabeth's body. And it appeared that the shoes had walked away from Elizabeth's body and then back again several times, kind of like pacing. Okay. While they were investigating, one of the officers took a bicycle to town and was kind of trying to get additional reinforcements because the scene they discovered was like spread everywhere. So they're like, we don't have enough manpower here so we need to call more people in this caused some problems because then there's more contamination of the scene yeah (sighs) so um they eventually got additional people from marseille but they didn't arrive until about 3 34 p.m there's some different information about exactly when they got there but the investigation was just so fucked from the start that around six uh six o'clock p.m they started to kind of canvassed the area, and they came across a Rock Ola M1 carbine gun in the river. It was broken in two and been in really bad condition. Mm -hmm. Even before it had touched the water, it looked like it was really messed up. There were several pieces missing from it, and it looked like it had been repaired several times. The interesting thing that they noted was that the site, which is the scope that you look through, had had been replaced with a one franc coin. Oh, so like a coin with a hole in it. Oh, like this had a hole in it. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, they just replaced the coin so you couldn't see through it anymore. Um, The wooden forearm covering the barrel was missing. Okay. Uh, The lever had been replaced by um, a Duralumin ring, which was taken from a bicycle. So it looked like this haphazard makeshift gun. Okay. Um, Yeah. That's sketchy. Yeah. It's very sketchy. really sketchy. So the Da Vinci's claimed that, um, you know, they hadn't really seen anything going on while their party was happening. And they said that there was a motorbike and a sidecar that they saw that they didn't really, you know, recognize that drove down the road at about 1130 p.m. Um, there were witnesses who had said that they, st- they saw all the Da Vinci's kind of walking back and forth. There was one report where it stated that Gustav was outside on the farm in the company of someone that was not familiar around 1130 to 12 o'clock at night. So there were all of these people kind of being like, I saw a shadowy man with Gustav Dominci. I saw a random dude on a motorbike with a sidecar. So there's all these people like throwing these stories out that Goodness. are not lining up and making a lot of the speculation. Yeah, it's, you know, it's small town gossip. Okay. So two days after the bodies were found, a search warrant was executed at the Dominici farm because they were in close proximity and there were so many people there. They were like it, the likelihood of someone coming from the farm to murder this family is pretty high. So they get to the farm and they find a cache of all kinds of guns. Oh, because, God. Well, you know, it's well, a farm. Yeah, yeah <laughs> true. That's a good point. So they have a 12 millimeter like hunting rifle. There was an old Fusil Gras service rifle. Um, it had been rechambered to hunt large game. So they're like, interesting that this gun was retooled. 
Okay. They also found a 9mm carbine. Now, when they were investigating and looking over the farm, Gustav refused to answer any of the police officers' questioning. Um, he also stated that he... I don't know why this was put in here because it doesn't really make sense to me. He had this doctor's note that apparently was fake that said, like, he can't he can't be stressed out right now. Like, right? Like, the I most love fucking it. absurd thing I I've ever I love heard. it. The dedication. Yeah. I have this note from my parents that says I don't have to do this. Yeah. So the police come <laughs> back the next morning and they're like, all right, we're going to question you. And they questioned Gustav for four hours. Then they go back to um, one of the other people that Gustav was in interaction with, which is the person who took gave him a lift to town. So that was Jean-Marie Olivier. Um, Olivier told them that Gustave had waved him down from behind the Drummond's car. He was, like, really fucking surprised. Um, and he was unable to stop instantly. So he had to slow down slowly a couple meters down the road. So Gustave ran towards him, and then that's when he took him to the uh, police station in town to alert the police. Now, uh, a week or so later, on August 17th, the police decided to kind of reconstruct the crime scene to try to figure out what was going on? So in the dead of night, they go out to the area and try to figure out like the pacing and, you know, kind of reconstruct it. Sort of what we do now in a sense. Yeah. So but they're, they're just there. trying to like theorize and figure out like what the exactly. possibilities are, right? Yes. Okay. The one thing that was a little bit interesting that was mentioned in the notes was that there was no moon out during the reconstruction of the crime while there was a full moon on the night of the crime. So the light that was being admitted during the full moon was illuminating more of the area, which is why more people stated that they saw stuff. It was a full moon on the night of the crime. Of the oh, murder. gotcha. Yes. Okay, okay. So during the reconstruction, they were like, it was much darker. So you... So they're trying to gotcha. see if you could see people across the bank and stuff. Yeah. But there's no moon out, so you, you really couldn't. So it's not a really a good reconstruction, you know? Yeah, yeah. So they were walking around trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. <laughs> I just imagine a bunch of police just like, Wandering around at night. Doo, 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 doo. Oh, my mm -hmm. gosh. So during this time, they're still trying to figure out, you know, where is the gun coming from? Is the gun that they found in the river the actual gun? Like, there were pieces of wood found in, in Lady Drummond's hair. Everyone was beaten and shot. So, like, they're really trying to figure out, you know, there was some sexual assault angles. Mm. About a month later in September, Le Humanité, which was a French Communist Party newspaper. Le Humanité. Right? Le Humanité! <laughs> um, they reported in an article a notebook belonging to Sir Jack Drummond. Okay, now remember, he's like this big chemistry guy, right? Right. The notebook, which was found, was partially burnt and allegedly was found by school children in a garbage pile in Long Eaton near the Drummond's home. You know those kids digging through garbage piles. The newspaper reported that there was notes listed in there that were legible. Okay. And in the notes it said July 1947, 6 p.m., meeting in Lurs, which is where they were vacationing when they were murdered. Uh-oh. The rest of the notebook paper had been burned. So... This is when a lot of 
uh, hearsay started to come out that perhaps Jack Drummond was involved in some sort of spy ring. Oh, that's not where I thought this was going, but okay. Yes. I can see that. So, I'm, I'm, my first thought was a fair. Like, that was my first thought, but okay, okay, okay. So 1947 going. is post, you know, post-World War II France, okay? Yeah. We are rooting out Nazis still who have escaped the countryside. Oh, yeah. America's like, send them to us. Yes. We want your scientists, we please. We are pulling scientists into the United States. Yeah. And this is a big time where there's rapid expansion of scientific discoveries happening. Mm-hmm. So they kind of were postulating that he was involved in some sort of secret government something. He worked for the government during World War II about rationing. But we all know that... MI5 infiltrated every right. aspect of the government to root out Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is speculation that he was involved in something deeper and darker. Oh, my God. Which would not surprise me at all. Because, yeah. like, all the government shit, all of it in everywhere mm-hmm. was all sketchy. <sighs> <laughs> okay. So the weird thing that starts to happen <laughs> is Gustav is the son of Gaston Dominici. He's the head of the family, but not the patriarch. You know what I mean? He was in charge of the farm, but not the fatherly figure. He had a close brother, Clovis. Okay. So Gustave and Clovis and Gaston, Gaston. all started accusing each other of the murders. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I just imagined the Spider-Man meme <laughs> okay. of everyone pointing so at each other. this is now November of 1953. Okay. And they accused each other of murdering the family. Now, Gaston accused the sons of concocting a plot against him and stated that they committed the crimes to frame their father. Okay? And now the sons are saying that their father was a lunatic and he was just waiting for a time to murder. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sure. I'll go along with it for now. Okay. So the two sons, Gustave and Clovis, invite the police to Le Grand Tire, and they show them where the US M1 carbine had been kept on a shelf in the shed. Now, that was the gun that was found in the river. That was the one that was like with the fucked up. Sight yeah. In the, okay. Now, upon this. <laughs> Upon this, like, discovery, right, the entire Dominici family starts fist-fighting each other <laughs> in front of the police. <laughs> oh, my God. And so... How has this not been made into a movie? I don't know. Maybe it has. Maybe it has. Maybe, Maybe it's it a has. French movie. Yeah. <laughs> so they start fist-fighting each other, and then the police have to separate all of them and put them all in separate buildings on the farm <laughs> property. So, the police interrogate Gaston, and he has a really hard time kind of, like, talking to them. He can't, like, put a sentence together. And so, one of the investigators suggested that perhaps, while they're interrogating him, perhaps this was a sexually motivated crime. Now, following this comment, Gaston, Gaston, like goes off and stated that, yeah, you know what? Maybe the murders were triggered triggered by a sexual attraction to Lady Anne Drummond. And everyone's like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, what did you just say? Did you disagree with the police? So 
Mm. It starts getting a little weird. Starts um, getting weird? It starts getting a little <laughs> it bit continues weird. being weird. Now, later that evening, they decide to reinterrogate Gaston, and he repeats this to the investigators again. And then he starts confessing. Oh. Gaston claims that Lady Anne Drummond was getting undressed, and he decided to kind of make a pass at her. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which then he said There's, she accepted. I, you know, <laughs> that's all well and good, but I'm like, that is not the time to make a pass at anybody. Right? You happen upon a naked lady in the woods. Oh, how oh. you doing? Yes. Jesus. So he said that she accepted. They started fucking in the woods. And then this woke Jack Drummond up. A fight ensued. Gaston shoots Jack three times, twice in the front. Two in, one in the back, and then decides he's going to turn his pistol on Lady Anne and shoot her. Then he sees Elizabeth flee towards the bridge, but he catches up to her and knocks her unconscious with a single pistol whip. Okay. That's his confession. Okay. Gaston's confession absolutely contradicts the autopsy results. Yeah, I'm like... <laughs> Lady Anne's body was entirely clothed. Okay. Her dress had been pierced by bullets. The autopsy also showed that she had not been involved in any sexual activity previous to her death. They also uh, stated that there were different kinds of bullet hole wounds in the bodies, so not one gun, or appeared to be one gun debatable okay um, they also found several guns on the property of the Dominici farm so there was some kind of hinting that perhaps there was more than one person from the the farm who was out there that evening gotcha the trial started in november of 1957 and only lasted 11 days before gaston was found guilty and sentenced to execution by guillotine Okay. <laughs> so he confessed. So they're just the like, evidence was against All right, him. we're done. <laughs> okay. Public outrage. Just everyone freaked out. They're like, are you kidding us? <laughs> Good. Yeah. So the Ministry of Justice took an unprecedented step and appointed two senior commissioners um, to conduct a, a secondary inquiry. Okay. Into this case. Nice. Hopefully before they execute him. Now at this point... <laughs> Yeah, right. At this point, you know, France is not famous for that. Um, yeah, yeah. At this point, Gaston decided to protest his innocence. He's like, I didn't do it. It was my son, Gustave, the one who found the bodies, the one that went into town to call the police, the one that decided to wait for someone to drive by instead of getting on his own motorbike. Interesting. Okay, why would you confess then? Right? Okay. I don't. So he insisted that he saw his son Gustave with someone else carrying Elizabeth's body across the alfalfa field before dawn on August 5th. He said that, um, you know, it wasn't me. It was my son. Yeah. Just kind of maybe alleging, you know, that he was protecting him or whatever. Okay. Okay. In uh, the next month, December of 1957, Gaston's death sentence was commuted to life in prison with hard labor. And in 1960, he was set free on compassionate release grounds by President de Gaulle. So when, wait, so when was it commuted to hard labor? 1957. And then he was set free in 1960. Yo! Like, yo! 
He died in 1965 at the age of 88 in hospice. Suppressing. However, in a book that was later written, the autopsy reports were kind of brought back to the forefront. Um, And they kind of stated, you know, it's very obvious that the confession in the story that Gaston gave to the police was absolutely not even remotely close to a legitimate story. And that his confession should have never been considered, and the autopsy result should have been at the forefront. Yeah. So the kind of general consensus that this book took on was that it was more than likely his sons that committed the murders, and he covered it up for them. But an even darker plot line came after this book was released. And it was this weird document that was found in Germany. (laughs) Okay. And it was an official document of investigation on Jack Drummond. Oh. These documents reveal that soon after... Oh, wait. Germany, Nazis. Got it. Okay. Well, it was after World War II. After World War II. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Wait for the plot twist. Oh, God. The documents state that German prisoners admitted to the involvement of the crime of killing Jack Drummond and his family (laughs) with... A Greek man, a Spaniard, and a Swiss national who were hired to murder the family on August 4th. (laughs) What? All four of these men were wanted by the German police um, and admitted to them that they were contract killers working for a communist organization out of Frankfurt. Is that true? Or is that like, is that true? Yes, they were. were That is what actually happened? They alleged that they, they okay. killed these people, but okay. there was it was they were never investigated. That paperwork stayed in a German prison and never went anywhere. Yo, and that was so they were brought in for something else for a yeah. contract killing of some someone else. Yeah, and they stated we are contract killers. Oh my god! And they alleged that they were involved with a scientist's murder in France. Yo, what? In the French Alps region. Didn't give a date or time, but in the official file, it states that it has like Jack Drummond question mark. Oh my God. So the actual killers of Jack Drummond and his family could still be at large. But the bigger question is, was it a contract killing or did a bunch of horny, random, Franco-Italian farmers murder a family? Honestly, I I think one is just as likely as the other. Right. Truthfully. Mm -hmm. That's wild. That really should be made into a movie. That is a a crazy story. (laughs) That's that's wild. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, before you decide to travel to France, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh... Maybe listen to this podcast. <laughs> Hello, this is Margot P. And this is Margot D. And we are the Margos. We are the Margos. <laughs> co-hosts of the Book versus Movie podcast. We are the podcast that talks about films that are adapted from books. We read the book, we watch the movie, and then we decide which we like better, the book or the movie. Now I know what you guys are going to say. Duh, the book is always better than the movie. To which we always reply, have you ever read you Jaws? Read Jaws? <laughs> we are not film experts or literary geniuses. 
Nope, we're just two friends who like to chat about books and movies. We really like to go for a deep dive into the history of the book and the background of the author and the trivia from the movie set. And most of all, we just like to have fun, so we never take ourselves or the books or movies too seriously. You can find us wherever you sign up for your podcast under the name Book Versus Movie. And on social media, you can find us at Book Versus and Movies. You just spell it all out. Hope you check us out soon. All right, Janelle, that has been our episode. Oh, boy. Je suis la juvie. I'm just going to start naming things. Je I know suis la juvie. <laughs> I'm a little du fromage. Right? Yeah. I think we've done this in a different episode. Oh, we totally have. <laughs> Pretty sure we've done French crabs before, and uh-huh. it ended the exact same way. Do you have any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap this up? I mean, no. <laughs> it's always the government, I guess. I cool. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could get on board with that. Mm-hmm. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Au revoir. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another.